Cool. Welcome here, Luca. Thank you. I, I just came and had a talk, uh, one of my traditional like inspiration of AI kind of talks, and I always end those talks with one and the same type of slides. And that is, you know, how to uh, make AI learn to dance. <laughs> and this is from a project that you did with your wife, if I'm correct. Correct. Um, so can you please just give a quick uh, background? You know, what's this, you know, how, how can you make AI learn to dance? So uh, it started by uh, me going off and uh, evangelizing the greatness of AI and everything AI uh, to my wife and how it was applicable to just everything. Mm -hmm. And um, she was slightly skeptical, but said, okay, but uh, how, how would you um, apply this to dance? Mm -hmm. And I th thought a bit, and um, what we did was that uh, we recorded a number of hours of her doing her choreographies, dancing with choreographies. She was a professional dancer, right? Or yeah, yes, yes. So she's a choreographer, but former professional dancer. Mm. And uh, we recorded with a Kinect sensor that uh, basically captures the joints of the body. So we get like this moving stick figure. Mm. The standard like Xbox Kinect sensor. Yes, thing, exactly. Right? exactly. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so captured data from that, like time series. So it's... Uh, if I call, recall correctly, it tracks 25 jo joints and three. 27. 20, yeah, 27, I think. 27. 27. Oh, Very important sure. that it's 27. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you probably are correct. It's probably 27, uh, 25. Then. Somewhere between 25 and 27 <laughs> joints. <laughs> and uh, trained the neural net to, gener to generate new choreographies. And uh, it worked. Mm. So we wrote a paper on it, published it, and recorded a couple of videos. Mm. And actually, uh, she's um, doing research. She continued oh. with the sort of AI um, and uh, dance research. So mm. uh, she's now at uh, Stockholm's Konstnärliga Högskola, mm. uh, exploring where it's like style transfer, also now the different text generation uh, yeah. things. And oh, really? See how it works together, yeah. And, and just to make all the techie people listening in uh, happy as well, they are not happy right now because you said, you know, it worked. We simply learned AI to dance. But if you were to give, go a bit deeper into how did you make it work? Uh, what, yeah, what was the solution, so to speak? So it was relatively straightforward. It was an LSTM. The, what, what was not super um, simple was the uh, error function. Because uh, if you use uh, mean square error, it just converges to a, like a single point, like a single pose, and won't move around. Mm. Uh, Some node collapse setting or something. Uh, so we use the um, MDN as a metric, and uh, it's uh, basically a way of this, uh, making a discrete space out of the. So a mixture density network. Right? Yes, mm. exactly. So I thought it was for techies. I mean, everybody knows <laughs> what an MDN is. Man. I don't think so, actually. But <laughs> no, but, so th this is the cool thing. So there are, tech, there are techie perspectives and there are people listening and, and needing to know that doesn't follow at all. But I think one of the things we have talked about is that actually exposing everybody to talk about the real techie stuff, but then maybe explaining it together, you know, dumbing it down, that's my job. Mm. You know, it's really cool. It's, it's a good way to really get your, you know, demystify and get really immersed in mm. this topic. Cool. But it is a problem, I guess, to learn, you know, 27 or 25 different joint position in a 3D world mm. at the same time, right? And a single model to predict them all, right? Yes. So, uh, so to reduce the, the space so that it wouldn't be 27, because it turns out, and uh, we actually had a, 
master student uh, at Baltarion mm-hmm. investigating this. Uh, ba- basically, for some reason, the mixture density model can only handle a few dimensions. After that, you, you sort of get all sorts of problems. So what we did was that we used an autoencoder first to reduce the dimensionality. Mm-hmm. So the 27, 25 to 27. <laughs> <laughs> uh, What's reduced to, down? Joins to, to five or six or something like that. Yeah. And this time it's three because it's the 3D coordinate, right? For yes. everything yes. as well. So. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm always impressed when I see that. And I usually start with, you know, showing after 10 minutes of training, it just randomly is moving around. But then, you know, after it's been trained for two days, I think, 48 hours. It was a weak computer back then. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, probably today. With today, computers, it would be faster. But but still, you can see the, the AI, uh, like a... What do you call it? Like a streckgubbe? Uh, yeah. Like a... The, the stick figure. Stick, yeah. It's actually making dance move in a generative fashion. So basically taking step by step continuously and can do so forever. Yeah. And uh, it looks really cool. And it's really, you can see it's in the style of the human dancers. So it's learned that type of dance. So what, what was the name of the dance? What's it? Professional? Jazz mo- dance. Mod- modern dance? Modern, right? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Contemporary dance. Modern. Yeah. 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 Uh, it's one of my favorite way to, to end the talk and everyone gets super, you know, uh, excited when so you have when a little video that. clip or something. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so cool. It's, yeah, one in, one interesting thing regarding that was uh, I use that clip a lot as well to, to mm. show and uh, like the crowd pleaser at the end of a presentation. Yeah, and uh, like three years ago or so when we did that, that was sort of after a talk. That was what people wanted to talk to me about and what they remembered. Ah, it's the, the dance guy. Mm. And the interesting thing there was the shift because then AI, sort of almost any audience that you t- talk to, uh, especially in the sort of enterprise space, it was like, oh, this is awesome new technology. It's none of our problem now, but it's cool how the future looks. Mm. And then it r- rapidly shifted when it was like, yeah, yeah, cool da- dance figure, but this, this use case and this use case and how do I implement this in my organization? So there was a m- massive shift from like, oh, cool technology to, like, how do I do this? Mm-hmm. Two to years mature. ago, three years ago, when was the shift, you say? Or, it, or has it been gradual? Uh, I would say, um, yeah, two years ago, I think, the, the sort of uh, really noticeable shift was. So we're not talking anymore that why we need to do it. It's more like, okay, how do we do it? Yeah. Or what should we focus on? Absolutely. Good. Cool. And let's uh, just backtrack a bit and uh, see for people that don't know you. Who, who are Luca? So who is Luca? <laughs> yeah, um, I'm the co-founder and the CEO of Peltorium, mm-hmm. um, Swedish AI company that creates a platform that makes it possible for non-data scientists and non-AI experts to build advanced AI systems and put them in production. Mm-hmm. And I think we can speak more about Peltorium later and, and the vision and, and the reason for you starting the company, but, but uh, perhaps a bit more about you as a person. Uh, you went to KTH, right, before? Mm-hmm. So I, I uh, studied uh, el- electrical engineering um, together with Mons, my uh, co-founder. And we were originally drinking buddies rather than <laughs> professional <laughs> buddies. That's everyone in university, I guess. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, and uh, then uh, towards like it was the third or fourth, fourth year, we started getting interested in AI. Actually, my first encounter with AI. Mm with neural nets was when I was in high school 
and I had this like Windows neural network simulator, which was a so that's a Windows operating system. You mean yeah, some yeah, kind yeah, of simulator yeah, on it? It's a simulator Windows. on it, and it, it looked like it was like a window, and on it it had a lot of boxes, like text boxes, and there were some random numbers in it, and I mm. I, I, I didn't understand anything of it. Mm. Uh, so, so that was my first contact with neural networks. Then I deviated a bit and for like my, um, what's it called? Exam project in, in high school. Uh, thesis project. Th- thesis project in high school. I did a chatbot. Really? Yeah. That's an interesting story by itself. But okay. So it, it uh, wh- what year is this? You remember? Uh, this must have been 97. A sh- early chatbot. Yeah. And ba- basically what, what it, uh, what it did, it, it had a, library of answers that were key- keyword triggered and then it had a grammar engine that tr- tried to make something sensible out of the the uh, sort of sentence when it didn't occur in the sort of mm. uh, keyword hit list sounds unfortunately how chatbots work still today yes <laughs> 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 okay cool so so you was it during your studies that you started to have a fashion for neural networks i, I know that you had a like a passion for that long before even deep learning happened. And yes. So um, I, I think it was like not in the last year, but um, like towards the end of the education, uh, I had a couple of AI courses and uh, both m- me and Mons were fascinated by the concept of the computer programming itself. Right. Uh, so we, uh, we tried a, bunch of things. Neural nets was one. Another was um, uh, genetic algorithms in various fashions. So mm-hmm. we, we had one of the naive ideas that we had was like, hey, evolution can build these really awesome things. Why can't we just generate the programs, generate it sort of bit mm-hmm. by bit? Of course, the computing power wasn't anywhere near that and still isn't anywhere mm-hmm. near to be uh, uh, able to do that. But then we sort of got more into neural uh, neural nets and we started the company while we were still at university and uh, sort of made our product as part of our thesis uh, project. All right. Okay, so your thesis project was about some kind of tooling for... So it was, uh, I think the title was uh, Neural Network Applications in Classical Mechanics, but that was just a cover Mm -hmm. so that we could in peace sit and develop our... (laughs) (laughs) And what was your initial uh, business or product idea at that point in time? So what we saw was that uh, neural networks are awesome, but it seemed to be confined just to academia. And uh, those people in academia, they, they seem to enjoy it a lot that it, this was this esoteric secret science that uh, people were doing. So we, we thought like we should, uh, we should simplify this. We should make this um, a much more user friendly so that it could be applied to real world problems. Um, so in, in many ways, what we did back then is the first iteration of what we are doing now. Now, of course, technology has changed, uh, user base has changed, and, and so on. So there, there are differences. But the core idea of having a, a simple user interface to be able to build neural networks and deploy them. That's the basic f- yeah. first principle idea exactly. here. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I would say possibly sort of the strongest are uh, sort of where we put, invest most time there was building this big uh, pre-processing and visualization uh, uh, engine. So you started to build some kind of 
product or tooling yeah, or yeah. So development was, environment or how, how would you call it? We call it a development environment. Yeah. Uh, it was sort of inspired by Visual, Microsoft Visual Studio, but it, mm-hmm. it was uh, f- fully graphical. We could import your data, visualize it in various ways, then build a model, train it, and then put it into production, analyze mm-hmm. them into that. And that was like a desktop application at yes, that point? Yes, that was a Windows-based um, desktop applications. Uh, this was before GPUs and so, so on. So what are we talking here? When did you go? When did you graduate? 2004. 2004. Right. What were you doing in 2004? Uh, I'm my PhD, I guess. Uh, you were in PhD, and I was, yeah. I was right about moving to Australia oh. to, to work and surf. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cool. Uh-huh, cool. That's a long time ago, but still, yeah. Not that long, but it feels a long time ago. Yeah. Oh, actually, it is a long time ago. <laughs> Sixteen. <laughs> now, but I remember the first time I saw Synapse, uh, which became the name, I guess, yeah. at a later point in time. Uh, how, how did the name come about, so to speak, for, for that? Uh, I think I, I, I saw a movie with Tim Burton that had this super co- uh, conspiration thing that was this software that's going to take over the world that was called Synapse. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that the original, uh, the sort of first name that we had before release was iStudio, like Intelligent Oof. Studio, but yeah, yeah. I was like, eh. Cheesy. Eh, eh, cheesy, yeah. Mm. So. Oh, Synapse is cool. Yeah, it's another Swedish company called that, I think. Now, is it now? Of course, yeah. it is. There's also Microsoft database. That yeah, yeah, just lo- 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 they, 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 they lo- very confusing. Mic- very confusing. <laughs> so, yeah, okay, so you started to build this tool, and, and if you were to just very, very briefly describe what was the functionality of Synapse, how would you describe it? So, so you could basically you could import data from a variety a, a number of sources. Uh, it was built entirely plugin based. Yeah. So every part of it uh, y- you could add to by just writing a new plugin. So you would um, import your data. You had a number of uh, formats, and then you could you, you had the whole pipeline for pre-processing um, and uh, visualization and data mining. So, mm. so you could add filters and pre-process your data, and then you got your data to the model builder part of the app mm. where you could uh, construct a neural net. And you use the term like filters, etc. Mm. Was it intentionally like from Photoshop kind of yes, terminology exactly. kind of thing? Or exactly. Yeah. So it was, uh, uh, we basically got the idea from Photoshop to have non-destructive filtering where you do modifications to the data, mm. either on a sample basis or a feature basis. Mm. Uh, and uh, that you could basically rearrange them and um, remove without it touching the data. And then when you ultimately sort of applied it, when it went into the model, mm. and also then when you deployed the model, then you will get that, the filter stack there uh, deployed. Right. So it's, it's coupled with the model in some way. Yeah. And when did you pick up sort of your programming skill or software skills? Is that at university or is it something you've been doing also? Oh, uh, hacking much, the much whole- earlier. Yeah, hack, think, hacker yeah. From, by birth. <laughs> Never, sort of never hacker fully, never sort of the demos, the demos no, no. and so on. It, it was more on a, a, so I think my my first, 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 first software that, that I remember that I wrote, that I was perhaps 10, 11 years old. And I had this, um, uh, I had a, f- me and my friend, we had the same type of parrot as a pet. 
and I wrote some software that was an ins- uh, basically an uh, instruction book for keeping the parrots in a log that you could do things. So it was a really so what stuff. are we talking now? Commodore 64? So it was in, in parallel. So Commodore 64 was one. Uh, and then this was on some like QBasic on um, uh, 286 uh, oh, PC. PC. <laughs> yeah. Be- because I think this is pretty cool. I mean, like, um, I have uh, three, th- three kids, like uh, 14, 12 and 10. And I, I, I think we have sort of, I've picked up that my middle kid has I think he has an aptitude and interest for engineering and software and stuff like that. But right now he gets sort of completely bogged down in playing Minecraft. (laughs) (laughs) So, and we are trying to sort of get him inspired, you know, why don't you try write some code or why don't you go to these classes? He he went to one of these um, courses, something like uh, Höstlov's education at the Tekniska Museet. And I think he kind of loved it, but he doesn't sort of get into it, right? Mm -hmm. So we try to give him a computer. What, What was the triggering fact sort of getting... In, you know, mesmerized by computing, writing software. Not all kids do that. More kids should do it, I guess. I don't remember, but uh, what, what, I, what I sort of, for me, what coding is and what, what I'm missing today when I don't is the creativity of it. Mm. That you can create something, you can see the results rather Super immediately. Cool. So it's, uh, for me, it's always been like a creative kick. Yeah, very cool. And then Synapse, you, you could uh, import your data, you could do the filtering, some kind of pre-processing, and you could train some models. And I guess that was not only neural networks, right? You, you did no, support we, some we, of stuff? No, we or? also had uh, support for trees, also some more obscure things like fuzzy logic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and uh, it's it's all a tree graph anyway. Mm-hmm. So, uh, um, yeah, and and things that are not, which I'm, I'm just basically waiting for for it to come in new in new editions. But like self organizing maps, neural gases, and th- things like that. Uh, yeah, yeah, and and I know you're a bit humble here, so you don't want to say all the people that used it, but people can can go for this later. But it was a lot of companies that made use of it, and a lot of research papers that were written making use of Synapse right uh, during that time. Yeah. And uh, a lot of like NASA and Tesla and whatnot that actually made use of, of that in some way, right? Yes, yes. Um, it, it was interesting. We were, we were like we were completely flying blind. So our, our our sort of whole go to market idea was, yeah, the internet is big. <laughs> so if we put out some ads, I mean, the internet is so huge that's like people will come and this will become a global big giant. And, uh, and then um, what we weren't aware of was that uh, we were in this today, period today known as the AI winter or the second, second day. <laughs> no one winter. told me about the AI winter. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and when, when we realized that, then we, we tried to cover things up a bit. So we never said, so or we, we censored away neural nets uh, and we called it adaptive systems and things like that. <laughs> oh, so it was uncool. Yeah, it was, it was re- very uncool. Yeah. That's funny. That's, uh, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you were not. You're riding the opposite hype train. I don't yeah. Know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I remember when we were. Uh, this must have been like in 2006 or 2007. We were uh, at uh, uh, one of these conferences that are now huge. Uh, um, Nips ish It it could have been Nips or was it Ica? Ah, okay. so one one of the sort of neural network specific conferences, mm. uh, which was like amazing for like meet, meeting people who knew what backpropagation was. <laughs> like, it was like, whoa. <laughs> like this tiny... <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry. 
but then the years went on and, and you worked with that for some time but some then something happened in 2015 16 or something right? so uh, basically I, I would say w- what are sort of what ma- made this work what made this work commercially it's like okay we we sold these uh, licenses over, over the internet and uh, in the end uh, we did have some 300 customers and sort of 10,000 user overall, but it alone, especially in the early days, wouldn't have, it would have barely paid for me and uh, most for our, mm. for our salaries. But what, what made it possible is that we worked with some companies. Mm. One of the early things that we did was a, a house prediction right. uh, model. So this company that uh, back then had the mon- monopoly in Sweden, so all of their, all of the banks used them for uh, doing house valuation. So when you take out the loan for house, then... Uh, they want to know if it's uh, real or not. Yeah. And basically what they had, a mo- they had a model in place that was like built on theory rather than on data. Mm. And they, they, they were like, they gave evaluation and then there was a confidence interval that they got. And then the first thing we did was measure it and saw like, that, hmm, you're giving it out with a 40% confidence interval. <laughs> <laughs> so there's yeah, a large a chance tick. of the prediction being outside of the range and <laughs> inside of the range. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, we built a prediction system there and also, uh, I mean, there we learned a lot on sort of putting st- stuff into production and the, the importance of uh, the, the things there. Mm-hmm. But that sort of kick-started us. Yeah. Sort of and just to explain uh, from a more technical techie point of view, how, how do you predict the value of a house? What type of data do you use and type of model were used, etc.? So um, th- this is pre-deep learning, so it's still neural net. So it's a feed-forward backprop uh, neural net. Mm-hmm. In, in fact, it was a construction, uh, the best models that we have that Mons invented that was called Fully Forward Connected Perceptron Array. <laughs> <laughs> I remember it. Awesome. I mean, like, you, you need to get extra points for cool names. Yes, right? yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so is that an acronym now as well? FFPCG. TCN. Uh. <laughs> uh, I, I forgot that we always call it the ac- acronym, but I, apparently I can just remember the, the, like, the full name now. <laughs> That's fine. So, but it, it, it was basically uh, uh, a, a network. It was six or seven layers deep where each layer had a lateral connection mm. to the next layer and the, to the last layer. Mm. Skip connection, basically. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Or was it to each layer? Uh, it was fully forward connected. Then it's probably that each layer had to uh, to all of the other layers. Oh, yeah. Okay, cool. And, uh, and so that was the sort of the the basic uh, the basic model, but uh, feed forward neural net. Uh, and, and if you take it in layman's terms, so I can follow, like what, what's the input data that you know, and what is the yes. prediction? What what's so the so basically, you want to get a lot of uh, inputs, like um, what's the area of the house, how big is the yard. Uh, and data like that, and the output is the price. Price, yeah. yeah. So what we, what did we use for uh, for for input? So we basically in Sweden there's uh, Lantmeteriet that uh, has a large database. So the sur- national survey agency. Yeah, yeah with all the different uh, lots. Yes, exactly. In all the uh, so you could get some basic information about uh, the house from Looks there. Like, yeah. But then the magic happens when you have the coordinate of the house, because then you can tie it to uh, uh, geographic neighborhood, yeah. na- neighborhood. So we had like uh, distance to system uh, Systembolaget, how many Systembolaget That's important have. Uh, data <laughs> point <laughs> to have. <laughs> that, was, that was the driving... Uh, <laughs> so loads of points, uh, points of interest. Um, mm. 
And you know what the sort of most important, by far the most important and Driver. predictive. Okay, no, I don't. Okay, uh, that, that's, uh, that's ele- election data. Election. Oh, yes. really? How so people in that how, area? How, how people voted? in that voting district voted? Yes. Oh, that's kind of interesting. As, as a good uh, coefficient for determining. Yes. yes. And mm. uh, we learned there also since we we got also the, the uh, demographic data from SCB. And so on. Uh, it was very. You could see very interesting things. We saw, for instance, uh, back then. I don't know if that probably doesn't correlate, correlate now. But Sverige uh, Demokraterna in the south had the exact same uh, uh, demographic properties as Vänsterpartiet in the north. Don't tell that to people. With very high statistical yes. and mathematical precision, you guys are the same. And, and the worst, the sort of <laughs> worst, uh, the sort of the strongest predictor of a neighborhood going to hell and prices going down was mm. the amount of Kristdemokrater in the <laughs> This is what data driven means. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> But it was it was funny because we, we sort of we got pretty free hands to put this uh, mm. into production, and uh, when when we did, you know, so the result was super good. But then they got started start getting questions like, "What data are you using?" Mm. And then when the sort of uh, oh crap, we have to go and tell them that we use voting <laughs> data. <laughs> then it was a. Um, but of course, it's uh, it's aggregated. It's on a yeah. district level. So even with today's GDPR problems, it still would be a, okay. Yeah. I guess, so it's, that it's thousand so. people in a in, in yeah. one voting district. Yeah, but it's interesting that how how to determine the the the, the feature that that really matters. Yeah. Plus, I mean, there is obviously, and uh, I, I I usually go on about this, and we already did then is that there is a massive risk with these kind of systems. I mean, it's super tempting that you get these fantastic results, but basically what you're doing is that you're reinforcing what has been yeah. rather than what you want the society to be. Uh, yeah, mm. it, uh, that's an ethical mm. topic yes. right here. Mm. Absolutely. Cool, so you had a system that could basically predict the value of a house in a better way than before. Yeah. And, and uh, then I guess a lot of banks were basically starting to make use of it as well. Right? Yes, so uh, it's... As far as I know, it's still in production, uh, and uh, the banks use it. Uh, they mm. tend to be slow at shifting things out. <laughs> <laughs> well, they got your system in, so that's yeah. a good thing. But we we were really, really, really terrible at business back then. So this this mm. was like a uh, we did it on a consulting basis. Uh, with that, that we get to keep the all of the source code as well. Mm. But basically, they were able then f- to run it for at least ten years without paying us anything. No. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. <laughs> cool. Well, uh, that was some work you did, and then it turned into this thing in two thousand fifteen and sixteen. What, what happened then? So ba- basically, um, around yeah, two thousand. If I back down to 2008, 2009, so mm. GPUs were making an entrance. It was mm. very clear, like, okay, wow, this is really cool. I can do these calculations very fast. So let's let's add GPU support. And we did, but the problem was that it was so early that the compute framework, uh, CUDA, for, uh, for GPUs was evolving like on a week- weekly basis and we had no chance of maintaining it. And for people that don't know, this is before TensorFlow even existed, so to speak, oh, yes, at yes, least yes. Uh, publicly. Mm. Uh, and uh, then around uh, sort of 2012, 13, 14, 15, sort of the, the AI, the market was uh, taking off. Our software was getting outdated as deep learning was taking center stage. Mm. Uh, and we had the choice of basically 
should we grow organically with our uh, customers or should we take an in, uh, external investment? And uh, it sort of came to, to its edge where we had the project together with um, SMHOE, the met- meteorological right. agency. And um, basically the project was about improving wind uh, power forecast. Wind turbines. Basically. Wind turbines, yes. Mm-hmm. Because the, sort of the, the models that are out there are... Tomorrow, the weather will be like yesterday. <laughs> That's uh, also yeah, sort of, so. a good baseline to have. So we, uh, we started building the, uh, a model for that and got some results. And then we realized, hmm, the weather model that SMPOE uses, that's a very, I mean, th- that's, the, th- that's a finite element method-based uh, simulation that, that's built on uh, a few very simple mathematical equations uh, that may not always hold up to reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, we got a bunch of satellite data and um, SMHOE has a data set called MESAN that doesn't predict the weather but shows what was the weather an hour ago. And you get everything. You get like a map with temperatures, wind directions, humidity, and things like that. Uh, so we built a system that uh, to uh, tr- try to predict the weather 48 hours ahead and it worked really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the the big thing here wasn't the improvement in accuracy. It was like the improvement in cost. Because uh, we could do in milliseconds what uh, t- took many hours on a supercomputer. We could do it on a cheap computer. Yeah, that's another one of the most cool projects uh, I think the Baltarion has. About being able to do weather forecasting basically in a really efficient and, and fast and uh, cheap way as well. Yeah, uh, really cool stuff. Um, so predicting value of houses and doing weather forecasting and what can you not on dancing and yeah, mm. a lot of cool stuff. And what what, what was the sort of uh, shift to what Belteron is today? Or like what's this, so, what's so the basically nice at, at that point, yeah, uh, I never finished the <laughs> exactly <laughs> the story. Yeah, so it was uh, uh, basically we had this weather model that was like okay, this seems great. Uh, how do I, how do you commercialize it? And then we uh, we met with Equity um, Ventures, who became our first uh, first inventor investor. And met with a team there that were basically, they, they weren't really, uh, their interest in the meeting was that they had a, a project, a project of their own called Motherbrain that tried to predict who they should uh, invest in. But then they looked at what, what we've done and then say, basically they said, you idiots, you, sh- you shouldn't be like looking how to commercialize a weather model. It's your, it's your platform. You should, that's the big thing. You should continue doing that and don't get sidetracked on these uh, sort of vertical implementations, but you should do it properly financed and uh, with modern technology. And we were super happy that it was uh, somebody who (laughs) really understood. So that was the... So in a way, they were part of shaping the, 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 you know, the the end idea where, where we are going now, like in these conversations they, they were uh, the one they reinforced that the, the sort of core idea that we we had there that there was something actually the even first idea yeah, 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 yeah. Even because the w- what the current platform is is a modern uh, modern version of synapse it's uh, it's cloud-based you have gpus it's uh, uh, there's come new things like transfer learning and things like that but at the core uh, a, a one-shop stop where you can Import your data, look at it, uh, tr- build your models, uh, train them, deploy them. Sort of that 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 thing is the same, 
but uh, a couple of order managers more com- uh, complicated because it's cloud-based now. So it's not just somebody running a, a desktop software on your own computer, but it's many users simultaneously distributed in the cloud. So. Cool. So you got some funding from EQT and, and then you started to grow from being a two people founder only kind of company to how many are we today? Say? Um, a bit, uh, slightly under 100. Yeah. And uh, we got some, there was some additional funding, right, as well, after EQT? Yes, so after EQT, uh, the Wallenbergs came in. Yeah. And uh, th- this was a, a, a part of a larger thing where, where we uh, basically, w- what we're seeing, what we're seeing then, which was a couple of years ago, but still seeing today, is that the US and China are really leading the AI race. Right. And... Uh, that we have to do something to be competitive. And this is not a zero-sum game. I'm not saying that uh, uh, because uh, we are losing out that because China is good. We're not. But we have to have something to contribute as well, since everything is based uh, based on trade. But but maybe we should sort of move into, like, uh, take this as a starting point for a theme, or like, Mm -hmm. like uh, if I can set it up a little bit. Mm -hmm. So... um, I would like to explore w- how you see the uh, um, the AI landscape today. Like, what is the AI landscape? And now I'm highlighting: we have industry. You are part of of the industry to some degree. We we have the public sector, private sector. We have regulations and people, and then we have on a macro level uh, different superpowers. We have countries, but even is it countries or is it super mega companies in these countries? Um, so, so maybe start. Maybe, how would you see the AI landscape? If if that's my broad mm-hmm. question, and you can sort of zoom in, and you can start on the on the tangent. You were starting on one tangent. What's AI landscape about? Yeah, but I can I can zoom out a bit and sort of focus in uh, uh, on, on that uh, later. But if you look at the the sort of breakthroughs. Why we are talking? Why we, why we are here today? Mm. Why we have this show is because of a number of academic breakthroughs that happened around 2012 mm. uh, that made these type of algorithms be able to perform things that were impossible before. Mm. And this this came from academia, mm. uh, and uh, this was relatively quickly followed with uh, 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 sort of the big tech companies, in particular Google was very, very early. Very early to understand, understand the value, the, yeah, understand the potential yes. and just running with it. Exactly. So they, they started buying up uh, departments. Uh, <laughs> they were buying up <laughs> buying. university departments. Yes, essentially. <laughs> And you say in 2012, you basically mean the AlexNet and computer vision and image yes, classification exactly. and that type of things. Yes. So, so that was the and and basically, uh, in, in in some ways, uh, it's in in one way it was overstated. In one way, it was understated. It was overstated uh, uh, in the way that uh, in practice, if you look at what happened in 2012, it was images. Mm. Basically, anything that or anything that could be expressed as an image. Computer now, vision is computer. Yes, computer vision is really what we're talking about. Exactly. Here. Now there are, I mean, there are millions and millions of use cases for that. So I, I don't want to say that uh, it's it's not important, but it's sort of at that point where people started to attach the ideas of oh, uh, general artificial intelligence and sort of all, all of that talk became popular. So they ended up at Google, most of the academia. 
or the great people at uh, academia uh, and uh, lots of the PhD students. Uh, and those companies are American. Mm. And uh, what we and there there are some universities that manage to recover, and there are some uh, universities that are really great today uh, at AI. But for the most most part, and including Sweden, this was a relatively hard hit. We had very talented people working in academia in Sweden who left for Silicon Valley uh, for better pay, for opportunity to work with the best methods, best computers, and so on. So brain drain from countries and academia into yes. tech giants. So in 2012, a true brain drain. Yeah, I think it was probably around 2014, 15 that that started. So it, it took a while to to get get started, and then um, China uh, sort of came in and uh, filled a void in the academic space. I would say in um, around uh, 16, 17, sort of there they, they start to become dominant with massive, massive funding of their their universities. And uh, it became scary uh, sometimes when you saw like, who's the best at this type of algorithms? And you would say, the People Liberations Army (laughs) (laughs) Secret Security Division 5 in Beijing. Mm. Okay. And when it comes to industry, uh, it's... Uh, it's very, very, it looks very, very different in different fields. And we also have the confusing fact that as AI was gaining popularity, AI was becoming a much more inclusive term. So, hype uh, term. Hyped so term. Slapped on everything that moves. Yes. Uh, or at least there was, there was less and less of differentiation between that this was actually deep learning that mm. was driving this to generalizing to any type of AI. And then uh, in that was included traditional machine learning. And then it was uh, basic statistics. And then it was, so well, if I write an if. So now now a small sidetrack, but as part of the Mm. context of the AI landscape, what is your definition then of AI? The the, the one second, two second, five second, Mm. is it deep learning we're talking about as the true so there's a difference between the sort of uh, what I think is the definition of it and wh- uh, the way I use it. Yeah. So my definition of it would be a software that uh, performs some uh, action that requires intelligence. Yeah. That that would be sort of the uh, or software technology that. Uh, uh-huh. uh, my own definition when I use AI, uh, I am a bit chauvinistic, so I'm I'm I mean deep learning. If I'm talking about uh, other machine learning, I typically call it traditional machine learning. Uh, um, but no, but because I think it's very interesting now, and here we sit with, with super experts, and, and, and I think it's a very fair, valid question to have also to calibrate mm. the conversation. And I think it's fair that, you know, within this context here, now it, when I ask, we talk about the AI landscape, we're talking about the brain drain, it has a lot to do with the deep learning context. Yes, yes. So, uh, and now when it comes to industry, so this, the, the AI, call it the AI revolution or the deep learning revolution, it coincides with the digital transformation of industry. Mm. And those two are very often intermingled. Mm. And there is a nat- natural relationship. But with the sort of co-option of the AI thing, I think there's one thing that's, that becomes a bit opaque. And that, that, that is that there are actually very few companies that have deep learning systems in production. You'll find the big tech giants and then some sort of uh, the the super unicorns like Spotify or uh, Uber or things like that. So sort of the the big ones. And I think this is a profound truth to talk about quite a bit because 
this opaqueness or this misrepresentation or mm. is also in some ways hindering us for looking cleanly at what deep learning is all about yeah. and how we can use that as a new coding paradigm. As you like to say, you don't need all the fancy big data stuff. You only need deep learning on the right data. Mm. I mean, like, so it's, and, and we, we have talked about this before. Mm. It's like, uh, oh, you know, we get misled by the analytical ladder, right? You need yeah. to do this before you do that. No, you don't. No. So uh, let's explore this even more now, because um, I think this is really interesting for everybody to how you see this point and how it really. I, was, I think that's an important question, but, but just to close the discussion on the landscape. AI landscape. Yes, before. <laughs> Sorry. So we have the, the big tech giants in, in US and Perfect. China. And um, what would you say the situation is in Europe and Sweden if you try to compare the like, yes. AI readiness so, levels? So so if you look at the past um, two or three years, uh, companies in the US, and I'm specifically talking about more of the sort of California and New York region, I, yeah. I'm not sure about... Uh, the average company. The, the average company. But the, the sort of knowledge and the adoption of technology is far higher than in Europe. Mm. Uh, so we are lagging behind and it's it's not good. Mm. Um, so the big tech companies are, are really accelerating yes, fast. Yes, they, they are. And there is an openness to, uh, to using this technology uh, mm. that we haven't seen uh, in Europe, be it either because of the organization styles or... So mm. let's park that question also, because mm. now we have landscape and now we have two major themes to come up mm. around the corner here. <laughs> Why we have yeah. problems, yeah? What's the problem, the struggle uh, for companies to get started with uh, DeepM? That's another, you know, very important topic, but let's I think. Take, I think it's, yeah. and, 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 and other angles on this landscape, or mm. is that sort of, you know, I think that's a good macro summary right here. So, so mm. uh, yeah, so I would say uh, right now uh, where, where we are, you have a predominant uh, US domination in, uh, uh, the technology, and especially when it comes to algorithms uh, and uh, practical sort of applications of them or uh, that. And then you have a lot of strong research coming from China. So these are the sort of two big theoretical uh, uh, bases. Uh, the space that hasn't been occupied yet and uh, that uh, we believe that Europe has a great chance is in the tooling space. Mm -hmm. Because ultimately, no matter how cool these algorithms are, unless they really get into the hands of people and more people beyond just the tech giants. Uh, they're not going to be that useful. So I think we we uh, we we do have an opportunity. We haven't like it's not a done deal that Europe will be a zero in AI and uh, everything will be dominated by uh, the US and China. Mm -hmm. Just look at the steam engine, for instance, British invention. Uh, what really changed the world there was not the invention. It was a necessary condition, but it wasn't a sufficient one. And what really sort of made uh, steam engine ubiquitous was the machine tooling for building a steam engine. Mm. When it became very cheap to build a steam engine, then it exploded. And the Americans were really good at this, even though it was a sort of British invention and uh, uh, England dominated the sort of steam Steam race. So when, when the actual tooling around building steam engines became easy to use, I guess, or cheaper, yeah, cheaper, widely available when there, yeah. when there was machine tooling so that it yeah. wasn't each steam engine wasn't uh, meticulously handcrafted by a few experts. Mm -hmm. So then it really revolutionized the world and the steam engine, you know, mm -hmm. started the, the industrial revolution in different ways, exactly. I guess. Yeah, it was all about automating physical power. 
Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think it's an apt analogy to AI where we are looking to automate things that require intelligence. So it's uh, th- there is a nice analogy there. And also now that we are in a situation where most AI systems are are handcrafted by experts. Mm. But but let's just before we wrap up the sort of landscape topic, uh, one angle that I think is also quite in- interesting to explore where you think it is, is it's also a little bit about where the main trends go, like w- w- what path are we on now? So, so clearly we're on a path of, you know, that we have been on for some while to use, uh, g- you know, smarter ways of processors with, with GPUs, right? And we, now we see next steps, GPU processing, even going out, all the way into visualization tools. So this is one key trend. And then we have the whole you know, GPT-3, <laughs> in general, you know, those kind of, you know, uh, transformers uh, trend. Then, of course, there must be a fundamental trend that I think has, well, if I take the more generalist view on this, not only deep learning, but I think it goes into uh, anywhere, is the funda- fundamental trend of simplification. You know, so to, um, uh, to, to quote uh, from a Gartner conference a couple of years ago, you know, when do we go from scarcity to abundance? Like a, a real tipping point. I think this is a major trend. Mm-hmm. So we have, we have an abundance of data but we have scarcity of uh, value into, you know, tree production value. And, and what is sort of driving from scarcity to abundance? Well, it's, it's when it becomes simple enough for everyone to use it. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the great example is internet, of course. So it's mm-hmm. been around for 20, 30 years, but we all recognize it from the mid nineties. And what made it abundant was the web browser. Yeah. So I think this scarcity, to, so that's, I think it's a major trend to go after. Would you agree with those kind of core trends? Or am, am I is some more? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um. And just to continue, or perhaps move into the other interesting discussion, which is, you know, why are people outside of the tech world or the tech giants, you know, struggling to get started with AI? I, I heard this funny term just yesterday, I believe, that they basically call it the AI graveyard mm. uh, or the prototype graveyard. Yeah, the pop graveyard. Yeah, so many companies are trying it out, but usually stops at the prototype stage and really or very rarely put it in production and get value uh, from a company. But the tech giants do. So can it, what would be your like explanation for so that? If we look at it from the, say, enterprise perspective, sort of the, the larger companies. So first you encounter the problem is that you, you typically have a high-flying uh, AI vision and data transformation, which mm. is enthusiastic, ambitious, and super fluffy. Uh, and then you have a layer of middle management that don't understand anything what's what's going on. And then you have a small team of experts who are, yeah, we're going to uh, we're going to build this cool stuff ourselves. Uh, everything from scratch. So there's first this disconnect in the organization between the the initiatives and the only places where I've seen see it work is where there's a really clear agenda that goes understanding both top down and bottom up. So I love uh, it. So it's strategic can be translated to tactical, can be translated into operations, yes. and vice versa. Exactly. So that that's one thing. Uh, another thing is uh, it's it's pretty mundane, but it's uh, basically to put it's complicated to put a system in production today, a deep learning system. Mm-hmm. It requires many moving parts. It uses exotic hardware like uh, GPUs that you have to manage, and it's built on experimental software that keeps changing. So uh, get, getting out a prototype is relatively simple. You do a one, one-off data ac- acquisition thing. 
So, oh, look, I have a CSV file with the, the problem. And you build this uh, a quick neural net with some tool and, uh, oh, look, the results are amazing. The cost of doing that is nothing compared to the cost of actually putting into production, making sure that you have data pipelines, that you, you sort of can regularly feed, uh, feed it with data, Ma- making sure that you have uh, when the system is in production that it's stable that you have monitoring there there's a whole world around it that's uh, far more uh, complex and where you're sort of building it on quicksand because the tooling is so experimental so i guess this is another analogy back to the steam engine that you know we can make a steam engine work if if you have some passionate people to have like a prototype of the steam engine but to really make it valuable you need to build thousand of them or Exactly. How they work in a great way, right? And then, then I think one one of the sort of um, um, I would say the, the sort of main experience from our, from our interactions with customers, what is always the most difficult bit is that when we come in as uh, AI experts, we don't understand their business mm. and what their priorities are, right. and at the same time, they don't understand what AI is, what it can do, and what it can't do, and making that bridge, that's the sort of uh, a key bit that's always complicated uh, and uh, I think long term the solution is better education in AI that everybody should understand mm. really o- o- before what uh, what it can and can't do and what what you can expect mm. but so let's let's take those bullets down because I, I concur with all of them and I have several of my key presentations has been in several of those areas so the first one was you know uh, we talked about making it connect the whole way Uh, not too fluffy, but from strategic, you need to have one agenda sort of thing. Um, the, there is a fundamental, complica- com- this is complicated stuff. So you need to be have respect for it in this way. Um, yeah, difference between pilot versus really making it work. And then the last point here, I think is equally important. The future is, this is, um, I use the word intersectional innovation. Mm. So we are living in a new core which is a domain expertise married up or infused with data and AI expertise. And I think this is profound because those things also means how, how do we organize this? How do we work together? How is our fundament, fundamental educational system looking like in order to support us living in the new core in the middle of the Venn diagram? Uh, so I think it's really cool. Uh, uh, it's profound, yeah? Uh, I'll add one uh, a bit more mundane thing, but where, where I see companies fail so often, and that's being so caught up in the sort of uh, idea of AI that they're not thinking through the logistics. Like, for instance, one, one company that we work with that uh, that had the idea of basically, uh, oh, we can use drones for uh, for inspecting something or other. And when you broke it down, it was like, yeah, I mean, the AI bit, it's just image recognition. That that can, we can do. But you're actually suggesting you build a fleet of drones. How are you going to transport it? How are you going to do, sort of manage the logistics around it? Yes, it's a super cool use case, but there is no chance this is going to go beyond some guy just with one drone doing a proof of concept and say, oh, great, we can do this inspection by drone. Yeah, but you're not going to put it in production. Yeah. To have a more holistic understanding, I guess, of yeah. you know all the steps necessary exactly. for for getting everything. And, and before we leave this subject, are there any simple? What's yeah. the number one or two, three things? If if you if you flip mm. this, you know, get started. What is the number two, three, four things? You just get this stuff right, yeah. please. 
Commit or, to deploy. Commit to deploy. <laughs> yes. I like this. So when when you'd start an air project, write it down in blood that this is going into production. <laughs> and m- many of the problems will uh, like solve themselves. So don't accept that this will be a proof of concept. We're just seeing uh, if this works or not, and so on. So really be committed to it, uh, to actually getting so into production. That's a sound out in commit to deploy. It should be written on some t-shirt, I think. Somewhere. Yeah, actually, it's, it's written on this cap, airplane. Oh. We have too many pilots. So we need to give them an airplane right. to ah. make them fly. So it's actually the whole, the whole idea behind that word airplane is, is ah. actually commit to deploy. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. And, and just to, uh, connect to that a bit, you know, a lot of companies are trying to get started with using data in different ways and become data driven and you know, have an understanding of all the KPIs that they have, etc. And we spoke a bit about this an, an analytical ladder that we can have in different steps in moving up in that mm. ladder and perhaps at some point reach the magical term of AI. Now we are ready for AI. <laughs> Not until now. We need yeah. to do this and this and this and this. First. Oh, it's one of my favorite topics. Or worst topics. <laughs> or worst, <laughs> or worst <laughs> topics, yeah. Okay, so, so what's your thinking about analytics versus AI? Yeah, so uh, people tend to confuse them. And mm. the, the, the difference is with analytics, the goal is to get some information that you can act upon in, a, in an intelligent way. Yeah. And typically the, the process, that the way it's done, is that you try to centralize as much as the, the data that, that you can get hold of from your company Aggregate it, have a data science department that looks at the data scientists that analyze it, and then they come up with a dashboard or with recommendations. And that. This is super important. Yeah, companies should do it. Uh, so I'm not saying that this is, analytics is not something one should do. It's one discipline. It's one discipline. It's a super important discipline. AI is something different. AI can be applied to analytics. You can use machine learning or deep learning techniques when you do advanced analytics. Yes. But uh, uh, AI is that, uh, I think you, you, in our conversation earlier, you expressed it pretty good. It's an engineering discipline. Yes. It, it provides a solution to something. It automates uh, something. So what you get out is some sort of optimization or a business value uh, or, or a cost reduction or uh, things like that. And the great thing is that it does not have to be centralized. You don't have to wait to have all of your data lakes in place and all your da- data in Problems can be solved locally, and typically they are best solved by domain experts. Again, the, this difficulty of bridging the business understanding and uh, AI. It, say, say that you have a, uh, say that you're an antenna designer at Ericsson. You worked uh, with antennas for 40 years, and now here comes this uh, de- newly graduated data scientist from the central data science department and says. Ah, you're building antennas. Would you like to add some AI to that? That's not going to work. The sort of domain knowledge that sits in that engineer is vastly bigger than what the data scientist can help with. And imagine also the poor data scientist. So one day he's talking to that antenna guys. Next time, uh, next day he's talking to the guys doing the billing. And then marketing. And the marketing, yeah. So so it it puts impossible demands Mm. on the data scientists. And yeah, I guess it's the catch-22 problem of either you learn AI experts to know all the domains yeah. or you learn um, domain experts to learn all of AI. Yeah. And e- both of those, I guess, is, is no, very difficult to solve. I, I think ultimately, um, 
for me, this is this is easy to solve as as soon as you recognize that this is a true team play. And it's not a team play where you can have two different organizations where you ping pong in, in between each other. You need to have a team play on, on, in a daily life over time, iterating, sweating, uh, having blood on their shirt together. Mm. And and then so so it goes back to the whole organization. Do we put it centrally? Do, do we put it together with the domain expert? Organizational-wise, there are many options. But work-wise, blood, sweat, and tears together over time. Mm. And and that and and I think what I'm what I try to say here is that the domain expertise have their lingo, they have their understanding, they have DFT understanding, and here we have someone with mathematical or coding and all that kind of stuff, and you know these guys talk Python, these guys talk Latin. If I'm if I'm <laughs> in in the in a doctor AI for doctors, I used to use joke like that, and and to me it's, it's that simple. How do we find our common lingo? How do I, as a domain expert, try fully understand the prerequisites for uh, neural networks. You know, what is the parameters when I can do a certain type of... Mm. So how do we solve this, Luca? Do, yeah. do we train in the domain experts or do we train the AI experts? Or do we do neither? Or do we so, do something else? So I, 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 uh, I think uh, a combination is needed. I, I think that, like, a lot of things can be solved by training the domain experts. Yes. Mm. Uh, and then you need a layer of experts that can help out when things get difficult or things need validation or and, and so on from the from the AI side. But you can get quite a lot by training domain experts. Mm. That's my. Mm. And I guess the tooling can help a bit as well. If Ab- we absolutely, might. I mean, um, uh, you can bake in a lot uh, a lot of the expertise in the tooling, and you can eliminate. But it's also, I mean, the, the state of AI today. I mean, you you had Carl to me. The mm. la- what yeah. was he talking about? Kubernetes. Mm. Why was he talking about Kubernetes, which has absolutely nothing to do with machine learning and AI? Mm. Because it's something that he has to manage in order to do AI, and he shouldn't have, because it's it, it's not core to the problem he's trying to solve. Mm. And this wheel is being reinvented and requiring uh, expertise that is. Um, it's even beyond just the data science uh, uh, competence. Mm. No, it, it, the stack has to, to, to manage the full life cycle from idea to mm. deployment and production takes you on a quite interesting journey. Yeah. Uh, tech-wise. Exactly. Mm. So what's your vision then? What do you think in like five, ten years? Uh, who, what would you say that the best type of organization a company would be that can scale up use of data and AI in some way? So uh, that, that's that's a good question. I can give many examples that haven't uh, haven't worked, but mm. I, I think some uh, some combination of uh, where you have a uh, it, it's also very very much depends on the company. Mm. If you think if we assume an uh, engineer technical heavy company mm. to simplify things, then I think the the sort of uh, approach that works is when you have a centralized center of excellence and data science uh, d- d- department and then you train all the engineers in using and building uh, building AML a- a- so that's the the engineers in the company in the different departments are sufficiently self self-sufficient <laughs> that they can handle a lot of stuff and then when they need help when they need more education and so on they have this center of excellence that they can turn to and uh, get support from mm-hmm. And, and I've heard you use the term decentralized AI, and, and we're not speaking about federated learning right now or swarm mm. learning or anything. What do you mean with the concept of decentralized AI? 
basically that uh, individual business units or even teams can solve a problem they have without having to involve the entire company and making it into a very heavyweight process. Mm. Uh, so we, we had we had an example of a company uh, that produces industrial goods, mm. and uh, one of the one of the sort of challenges was that they were in a big or are still in a very big digitalization process, and. Uh, the question was like, what could we, what can we do with AI? And wh- one of the things that we uh, came up with was that they, they have a production line where they uh, inspect things for quality. And in that case, you can rig up cameras there. You can, uh, it can be solved by the local engineering team without to get the data to connect it. And with the right tooling and so on, it, it can be solved without making it into a massive process, but rather making it rather quick. Um, the downside of that is, of course, that you, if you keep doing that for 10 years with everybody running their, their own uh, AI solutions and not doing anything about the data, is that you'll end up with a mess eventually. So there needs to be a feedback loop to, the, to, to some sort of centralized uh, bit. Mm-hmm. Cool. So, so I think th- this is one of the key challenges of also, also how to go about this how to get started without blowing up in a huge project, but at the same time have a learning organization or a feedback loop. So this is, this is I think, one of the key topics, how to crack that nut. Um, I think there is another uh, key nut to crack, and that, that is the fundamental orchestration topic. I mean, like we, we have different stakeholders in terms of who owns the PNL and mm-hmm. what's what, the business perspective. Then we have an engineering perspective. Then we have a data perspective. So, so... Also, how we work, and uh, we are not used to these cross-functional setups that is, uh, in my opinion, required. So even if you go mm. and find this problem now and you can l- solve it locally, it's still fairly, s- the, the, the f- many different parts or competences or different functions within that business unit that need to come together to make that actually a good deployment in production mm. that is used on everyday basis. Because it's not only about rigging that hole and getting that data to work. Well, how are you going to get it back into the normal daily workflow? And who is the boss of that? And, and all mm, that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think there is a um, strong case uh, for, for the future, especially if you talk about product companies and so on, mm. that has, have some sort of agile uh, workflow and cross-functional teams to add... Uh, data scientist or machine learning engineer as a part of that team. I think that that's a good one. But the problem today with that is that there is such such a massive gap. Mm. Uh, and the data scientist, especially with the complexity of tools, mm. it's not like you, you can have one data scientist to build, unless it's Carl Tomea, who's amazing, <laughs> <laughs> can build an entire production uh, system and, and platform in uh, uh, in place locally, uh, and that's that's also why the data scientists typically work in teams uh, today and as a, as, a, as a coherent unit. So I think you run into a lot of trouble there with just adding a data scientist and having just this sort of technology uh, with the technological uh, complexity that is there today. And, and a little bit that's part of the of the whole pilot graveyard that we have done exactly that. And they were mm. able to figure something out in their notebook mm. based on their CSV file. Yes. 
but you know the rest of that story is not covered. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. It comes back. It comes mm. back to this. Mm. Yeah. But it's but difficult it's, things. But are, are there any you know? So did we boil down this to any guiding? Idea? What was the fundamental? You know, we we understand the problem deeper and deeper and deeper. Mm. But do we have good simple? guiding principles on this or is that basically very contextual for each company so it it, it is very uh, sort of each time when i think that's like ah oh, now now we've cracked the formula no, yeah. for enterprise <laughs> then, then you sort of meet another company for instance uh, uh this uh, the model that i presented there like for an engineer heavy company it completely falls apart if you have a company that uh consists of uh, people who are not engineers, but non- non-technical. Large company has tons of non-technical people. Departments. Departments. And uh, then, you're, then you're suddenly, okay, either we uh, inject technical people there, but you can't really, because in, in this particular case, this was a very decentralized organization where each y- unit has a, a lot to say and have their own business goals and so on. So it, it's sort of, in those cases, it's, it has to be start as a central initiative. And then over time that you try to, to work yourself to, uh, yeah, so, work. so, so it's about context. It's about mm. size. It's about maturity. Yes. It's about the opportunity of data literacy or engineering literacy exactly. that basically have it, it's, it's a smorgasbord mm. of things you can do, but it's a more a little bit like, Hmm, we need to pick a starting yeah. point that is relevant for these. Uh-huh. And, and then also like uh, w- one of the other things is that. AI can typically strike at the center of a company, of a sort of core of, of the business. And there is a, like a decision to be made there, which is like, uh, do we do, the, do this ourselves or, or do we um, hire a consultancy firm or use a vertical AI company's product and, and so on? And that very much depends on sort of what the goal of the company is. Mm. If it's just a service company, then it makes sense to like use off-the-shelf things as simple as uh, as possible, replaceable products. Just try to hobble something together uh, as cheaply as possible, and um, do it like that. Well, if you're trying, if you have a goal of building value in the company, so if you or product, or if you want to go more to the product as a service or something like that, then you have to be, start making sure that you actually own the IP to the things that you do. Because uh, otherwise, the uh, the sort of the software that you're using that's generic it will be used by all of your competitors, and you won't have any uh, IP. IP. So this is this is a quite interesting topic. Uh, we had a, a, a Michael Klingvall here. Uh, he's a data scientist at Vattenfall. Mm-hmm. I used to work at Vattenfall before, and and I think this is one of those fundamental topics. What what is our core business in the future? And, and we always talked about this in, in, in Vattenfall that, you know, what actually the algorithm of the wind farm optimization mm. is, is our core IP. So when we had discussions with Siemens, you know, sh- you know, we, we, should we outsource? They wanted us to do stuff or, you know, we manage it for you, bu- buy our software mm. and we were flipping it around. No, no we, we, we don't want to buy a black box out of you. We might want to buy algorithms of you, but we want to run that in our data center because we have other data. And by the way, we are trying to do uh, return on capital employed, or you know, max, you know, maximize mm-hmm. ma- you know, b- best maintenance. So I'm not only looking at the turbine vibration. I'm also trying to schedule 
you know, right. based on how, how I can sell and sell and price my my energy, which you can't do. Mm. So I think this is core what you're saying now because it also means a little bit to take a step back at, at you know we, now we like our Elon Musk first principle. <laughs> so if I take a company like Vattenfall, uh, will a, is AI even part of? their first principal business. I think it is. Mm. If, if, if they are ultimately here to produce energy to, to, to you know, sufficiently uh, optimized, uh, it's, it's a core cost. Uh, you have uh, to find the, the correct level of abstraction. If, yeah. if you say like, should Vattenfall uh, build uh, a cloud of, it, of its own? No. Called Onga. And uh, <laughs> steam. Uh, steam, steam, steam cloud, steam, steam cloud. Steam cloud. No, but, but sh- should it like? Uh, That's the, true. So where where do they where do they draw the line? What is core? Exactly. So maybe the tooling is not core, but the algorithm, algorithm is core. Exactly. Is core. But uh, you I, also I agree po- with that. I fully agree with that. What's the sort of um, the curse of the vertical AI company? And we, we've seen this uh, a bunch of time. Like uh, we, we work with an insurance company where we uh they wanted to do some car like car damage assessment i think it was uh unless perhaps you know better but uh ba- basically our first initiative was to push them towards uh, there, there is a company that does this tractable that mm. does it re- really well it's like yeah well, why 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 are you talking to us why why do you want to reinvent the wheel like go go with tractable they, they are really great at this stuff but they were like no this is our core business uh we want uh even if what you what you build uh, will be inferior to what what they do it will be ours so it's mm-hmm. <laughs> it will be our crap so it, it won't be somebody <laughs> else's oh my god so it's uh, <laughs> interesting but it, but it, if you want to build uh, i mean there is a risk if you just uh pick and choose different AI services. i'll take this from google this from microsoft and so on and just connect everything is that ultimately you haven't built any value yourself you're just using uh, services that are required to run your business, but you you don't actually create any added value in the business. It's a patchwork of different systems or something. Uh, that as yeah. well, yeah. yeah. Cool. Before we move uh, too much into that, uh, we have a lot of top topics we'd like to cover. And you know, speaking about the Corona situation now today and how to reboot companies and whatnot. But but before we we move into that, and perhaps AI for good, that I know you are very passionate about as well. Uh, I don't think we closed really the lid on, you know, what Peltarion really is and what the vision is uh, nowadays. How, how would you describe the vision of Peltarion? So it's on your T-shirt. <laughs> Sorry. Oops. Okay. Uh, so uh, try to elaborate a bit more, perhaps. <laughs> um, so the vision, which is sort of where we want, where we see the world, where, where we want to see the world, Mm. Uh, to end up is uh, AI being u- ubiquitous and doing good for humanity, yeah. basically. And why why do we want that? Well, because it's much better than AI doing bad for humanity. <laughs> I think we we decided. Sounds like a good idea. <laughs> but there there is a massive massive potential in this technology, and it, it will be transformative, and it will be great if it can be used to make the world a better place. Mm. The way we're doing it. Uh, is basically, and that's uh, where our mission mm. is to uh, uh, make AI uh, accessible and affordable for all. And not now just for the tech giants, not, but exactly, for, yeah. not, not only for the tech giants. Um, I, I should qualify that uh, a, a bit, sort of where where we are at this level, because uh, I remember I had a there was 
interview in some British newspaper and they, they use the analogy of WordPress for AI. Like, uh, yeah, before WordPress, you had to write things in HTML and uh, it was just a few web developers who could do it. But then WordPress came and anybody could be here to webs- web pages. And I said, yeah, 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 ex- exactly like that. And then we got these pissed off emails <laughs> like, I know how to use WordPress, but I tried to use your platform and I couldn't. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, <laughs> Uh, so it, it's uh, directed at uh, still today at people with uh, a, a level of technical uh, skill, sort of engineers, developers. Uh, so so who's, who's the target user as Peltorium platform is today? So the the, the technical non-data scientists. We, we usually software engineer. We usually say engineers and developers, but it, it's it's a broader. So this this could be uh, we've had. One of the most active users uh, of our platform is a medical company with medical people using it. But it's it's always uh, some degree of technical knowledge behind it. But it doesn't have to be uh, AI knowledge or data science knowledge. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, that's mm-hmm. awesome. And and going to Corona then, um, this is uh, you know a weird year for I think everyone. And a lot of companies are struggling to just, you know, survive at these times. And we know that uh, the Swedish government, European, American, Chinese, and everyone are going to put a lot of investment now in trying to reboot companies, um, trying to, for one, make them survive, but perhaps also transform a bit and and become more sustainable in some way. What would you suggest or advise people to, for one, that perhaps have a company and are really struggling right now, they want to, you know, continue to be sustainable for a long time. How would you, you know, advise them uh, from a data and AI point of view to to continue? I think that's a hard one. I, I think w- one of the special thing about the Corona crisis and the economic impact is that the companies that we are seeing are struggling are in certain sectors, uh, and it's not through any fault of their own. So mm-hmm. it's not that they were doing something bad and that the market is killing them but it's it's the virus basically oh, yeah. uh, so it's an a, external factor so this is not conditioned by these uh, restaurants and airlines and so on doing things badly although they are but mm. that that's a separate yeah. <laughs> that that's not the reason for um, what is i mean what what we're seeing is an uh, acceleration towards the digital in mm. uh, uh, or at least claims uh, I should say. So uh, there's a lot of talk of, of uh, how fast digitalization is going now post-corona. Mm-hmm. But my my fear is that people think like, yeah, we're using Zoom now, so we are <laughs> super digital. Yeah. Uh, it, it wasn't I, the Swedish like educational minister that said basically that uh, the three years or three months of corona has uh, improved digitalization more than the last five years or something. But it's basically using Zoom. That's the thing. Right? Uh, I, I have a sneaking suspicion that's sort of what what uh, what people mean. Mm. But at the same time, um, what we're seeing from from companies that we're working is is that everybody has expressed that digitalization is now priority number one, yeah. and we're doing it now. We yeah. can't put it up. So it it has definitely so happened. so it has really raised the bar of digitalization number one. I fully agree. Well, what we actually done or what we were forced to do had more to do with digitalization around collaboration. Mm, That whole space exploded, right? Uh, But do we think that they have now actually, that's just a starting point now and we realize, 
I mean, like we don't have resilience in our processes. Our processes doesn't really work so well when I need to work at mm. home. Uh, this manual paper stuff, you know, this, you know. So I think they see also that, well, we now use survive by collaboration mm. tools. But in reality, we, we also understood how vulnerable we are. Uh, so, I, so maybe that's also a point that uh, from a... One part of maturity, I guess, is the urgency to act, you know, mm. dep- uh, commit to yeah. deploy. The commit uh, to deploy absolutely. went higher. Uh, another thing I think that was highlighted at it that is highly embarrassing is uh, how little AI has done anything in the corona crisis. Mm. What, Ex- what do you mean? Can you, <laughs> can Ex- you elaborate? On that one. That's a good one. So, so it's... Uh, Basically, the data isn't there. T- talking from the, the, the Swedish uh, uh, per- perspective, so the, the, there isn't the data that's required to use the AI to, or even basic analytics to, uh, to predict things, like mm. how it spreads, where it spreads. Uh, does it spread in schools or not? Uh, mm. Simple things like that. And it, it's a combination of very non-digitalized things and GDPR. Or right. unclarity about GDPR. For instance, in the Stockholm region, there mm-hmm. were tons of companies, us included, who offered the the region uh, the the services pro bono, and just like give us data and we'll uh, we'll Absolutely. do something. Mm-hmm. And they weren't able to because because they 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 really couldn't navigate in GDPR. They didn't. They thought like, oh, this is we. We don't know how to anonymize this data. We don't know if even if we anonymize, if we can give it out and so on. And after sort of lots of talks back and forth, their, their decision was, yeah, we're going to hire a data scientist ourselves. Mm. I was like, seriously, that that's not going to uh, to lead to anything. Uh, I'm looking at the world in general. I mean, it's not like we've seen a, a, a vaccine being created by uh, by AI and. Not yet, at least. Right? Not, not, not yet. Um, mm. So the data, the, this data situation is relatively poor worldwide. Mm. And let me see if I understand it correctly, because you know we are all a bit um, marbled, I guess, over how bad the prediction, even human prediction, not necessarily AI mm. predictions all the time, but even human predictions in you know if it's going to be a second wave or not, mm. or where it's going to spread and who is going to be hit the most and what the economical impact will be and yeah, the medical impact and whatnot. Is that what you're referring to a bit? Saying basically that the predictions in general, both human and AI yeah. made, are really, really poor, and yes, the confidence is close Although to zero. I, I, I don't know if anybody has asked GPT three. They could have answered too. Yeah, just that was GPT three. When will Corona <laughs> end? And it will say. Well, we, right. we, we would like to have uh, Lars Albertson as a guest here. Um, mm. I'm not sure if you know Lale. It's an old, it's a, a friend. Yeah. But he basically at the Data Innovation Summit last mm. uh, year, he he made a very controversial speech. Mm-hmm. He basically took up uh, you know a lot of the big COVID models mm-hmm. and tore it to pieces in terms of quality and how super inaccurate it was mm-hmm. and how piss mm-hmm. poor data engineering it was before. So you know what this cannot be trusted. This cannot be trusted. This is shit here. So. so there, there is some quite a lot of truths here also that we have sort of seen an explosion of visualizations, mm. which is also dangerous. It, we, there, there's been, you know, and now we're talking Hopkins data, right? We're talking yeah. real data, right? That uh, the actual craftsmanship behind it uh, 
has sent governments in the wrong path in UK as an example. So, 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 so there is a lot of interesting uh, stuff here to be explored. Uh, uh, let me ask a counter question. What is worse, these sort of uh, misleading or uh, inaccurate large-scale models versus Folkhälsomyndigheterna who uses Excel mm. to, to uh, uh, do their predictions? <laughs> I guess we that would be awesome <laughs> if we could answer that. Um, I I don't know. I, I I can't answer that. Yeah. I don't know what's worse. Mm. But I, I think it, it's been a le, le, like in theory we, we have like everything. We have this amazing algorithms. We have the method of collecting data, and uh, this should have been like a, the great moment of AI. Mm. And eh, not really, mm. not yet. Anyway, <laughs> let's see how long this continues. And, and what would you say that the main reasons are potentially? Is it regulation that is a big part of it? Is it lack of knowledge in how to use state and AI? Is it uh, tooling? What would you think? Uh, how could AI help more, so to speak, with the corona situation? I would say one of the things, uh, one of the scourges of, uh, and this is not just for uh, government, but it's also for uh, larger businesses and so on, is the sort of overstatement of their digitalization readiness, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, where, where they sort of, they do have a uh, digitalization or AI initiative uh, on the sort of fluffy level. Mm-hmm. And then on the specific level, they do a proof of concept, a test. And then they go, oh, we have AI. Mm-hmm. Look, we're really on track on uh, being super digital. We have drones. How, how more digital can you get than drones? <laughs> it becomes a huge tick box ex- exercise. Uh, as yes. my, whereas my uh, um, old CIO in Vattenfall, he, he always talked about, you know, digital sugar coating. Mm. And we always talked about, we, you, you guys, I was in the business, you like to eat the sugar, yeah? But you never take the cereal, yeah. you know? <laughs> you, don't, you don't chew it in the real stuff. And I, and I think, isn't that a key factor in itself now? Uh, the industry is hyping up uh, what things can do and mm. what things are, you know, Chaser's new clothes. Mm-hmm. I don't know the, the emperor's, emperor's new clothes. The yeah. emperor's new clothes. And by the way, we do the same in the industry to show that we are yes, we are on par with what where we should be. And it's it's just a huge tick box exercise. But who is really investing to commit to do the hard yards, mm. which which is really it's some hardcore dirty work to get AI to work. Yeah. Cleaning up your data, all this, right? So yeah, mm-hmm. it's a lack of people actually using, and I guess operationalizing AI properly um, today. It's very few companies that do that. But if we do think about like Sweden and perhaps at least enterprises or perhaps public sector, uh, can you think of someone that is starting to at least have some kind of maturity in terms of using yeah, data I, and AI, or I mean, absolutely. I mean, there there are uh, there are individual examples, even even in government. Mm. Uh, I think um, it's Re- Region Västergötland mm. is very uh, Holland also. I think yes. uh, are are very good uh, compared to others. So it, it depends on sort of how how they they solve it locally. But in, in general, I would say that there is a. I mean, wouldn't you expect that now when we have how many over a million, uh, two million, five million, how many are infected worldwide? Mm. That we shouldn't have uh, at least a cup, uh, some tens of thousands uh, full genomics uh, and uh, of the people, the anti- complete antibody profiles, uh, protein charting maps and, and, and so on, so that we can actually put some of the heavyweight algorithms 
on work and try to see ah which people are at risk what uh, sort of what brings immunity and so on mm. there's no guarantee that this will be an amazing result but let's at least start mm. with that and that doesn't really exist so would you say basically that uh, the maturity level now in, in enterprise or in sweden in general is, is low for at least ai um but do you th- i guess you agree with that at least um or? depends on what you compare it to i mean yeah good point um okay So Sweden versus Europe then. Would you say Sweden is better than the average European country in terms of AI readiness? It's a very good question. I I, I think it's an impossible question and and let me answer it from a Thank you. <laughs> no, let me answer it from a from a very concrete like company perspective where you know when you work for a long time and you explore the inner depth of a lot of different departments, mm. you know, if I can't really put a, a scale, I, I can't, I, of course I can do a mean and average of, of a company, but Vattenfall, but they're, they're more like a bell shaped curve, mm. right? It's, li- it's like a, a, any, it's a microcosmos of society. And, and it goes also with who I'm working with a lot now. So Scania is doing some super, super amazing stuff. I think the difference is to how do you do it pervasive? Mm. How do you do it enterprise, right? So how do I now, What's the scale we are talking about? Is it the best of the best? Is that your scale that we have core that we're doing really well in a project setting in production, mm-hmm. fully in production, but in a project setting? Or have we figured out the pervasive approach, right? Or the orchestration approach right. that sort of that the whole company as as a as an organism is here. Mm. And that's what I'm trying to say. That like it's very, very hard to pinpoint where the organism Scania is or where the organism Vattenfall is on this journey. Well, there are some easy to explain um companies. I mean, we know the tech giants, of course, heavy in the lead at least. Mm. So in some cases it's easy to, to identify. Mm. But then in others yeah, yeah. it's it's more there are some. I mean UK is fairly strong if you look at uh, they have DeepMind is mm. is there and um, you also have um, a, a good startup ecosystem. Mm. But even even uh, even I think uh, Stockholm has a fairly strong startup ecosystem, right? I mean, like we we are scoring quite high on on innovation. I mean, I'm does. not talking AI only now, mm. but but uh, some of that is quite healthy here. We ha- so it's a lot of opportunity to to draw on. I personally think Sweden has actually a really good potential. I think um, so too. And we have a track record of a lot of unicorns in Sweden yes, that absolutely. very few other companies have. So something is working for Sweden for sure. And but not it's not really that strong in AI yet. But I think yeah. it has the potential. And I'm not so worried about the sort of uh, di- digital native first companies and the sort of... Uh, mm. it's, it's, the it's, the, it's the proud analog companies who needs to, you know, make a shift. Yes, and I, to be honest, I mean, they, they are. I mean, they are doing a lot. Yeah, but, they're doing uh, a lot, of course. Um, yeah. But a lot of other countries are doing things as well. I know you mentioned like uh, UK, of course, mm. they had this kind of sector deal, I think, 2018 and putting billions of pounds into AI and, and uh, Germany is doing the same. And Finland is actually doing a lot as well. And they started even back in 2017, I believe. Mm. So so some countries are really investing heavily. Uh, right? Finland is in, in many ways a very impressive example where you, yeah. you sort of have a whole society support for AI. But yeah. they also have a tradition of it. Mm, I mean, no, uh, they were also. What do you mean? They co- they stand behind. When yeah, they I mean, in something. the sort of uh, in the nineties and so the uh, many of the gurus like Kohonen uh, came mm-hmm, from right. Finland. So they they have an academic tradition of dealing specifically with AI, um, and it seems to be continuing today. Uh, we, we've seen also the 
uh, one of our partners, Silo AI. They were very early to like uh, hold talks for their uh, for the government, for the parliament. Um, uh, the the course that we have the um, elements elements of AI that we have to bring to Sweden it's it was done in Finland mm. uh, first and, and so so I, I've been super impressed with uh, and what was the ingredients where they have gone differently or where they have you know f- pushed more what was the difference what has Finland done differently to us in Sweden perhaps that there has been a more central idea of that we're going to do this yeah and uh, s- subsequently more understanding from the Commit to deploy. Commit to deploy, exactly. <laughs> I'm going to print a t-shirt <laughs> of, by that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just going to tell you that. I'm, I'm going to have that t-shirt. I love that expression. <laughs> cool. I, I like to, I mean, speaking of Corona and speaking about medical use cases, um, I know you, you have a passion for using AI for good or for social good in different ways. And we, we had a number, or you had a number of uh, projects in Peltarn as well for, for using AI for social good. Can you just mention a, a bit of your thinking there and perhaps something about those projects? I mean, uh, basically it comes to this, that this is a really powerful technology that can be applied to almost anything. So, and it's very, very, very hyped. So everybody mm. wants it. So why why should we start off with something bad? Mm. Let's do something good instead. Mm. Uh, and this is, uh, and that that's one part of it. I, I think another part, and this is older, is, for instance, uh, Mons and I, we've always we, we haven't worked with the sort of defense industry, police and things like that. And the uh, idea is it's, it's not that I'm a pacifist or that I'm a, against defense, but I hated the idea that I would contribute to, for instance, the design of more lef- efficient landmines or something like that. Mm. Uh, it may be hypocritical, but it's the same way I, I, I sort of, I'm not a vegetarian, I eat meat. Uh, mm. But I like my uh, my meat to come in nice packages in the store. <laughs> I don't want to kill mm. the pig myself. Yeah. The same way here, I like I, I approve of defense. I have nothing, but I, I don't want to uh, my work to go go into that and the sort of su- subsequent thing. So mm. I think it grew out of that uh, uh, into a more general thing. Mm. But uh, yeah, there is one one cool project that we're uh, doing right now. I, I don't know. Bjorn has told you about it. So uh, basically, one of our um, uh, investors, uh, uh, Euclidean, uh, they are part of the Simons uh, Foundation. So it's Jim Simons, who was a who is a, a math genius and hedge fund billionaire, who started this institute uh, after he retired to do research in uh, the natural sciences, uh, in math, and in autism. And one of the projects that we are doing now with them is that uh, we're, we're trying to see if there's a connection between autism and uh, the genetics. So trying to use large-scale transformer models on raw genetic data to mm. see if that can be uh, mapped to uh, the diagnosis. Mm. Mm. So that's one of them. And how, how does that go about? Was the, you're taking the genetic code, sort of all that data, mm and then mapping it and see how you can predict outcomes so, to, so, to the diagnosis. So the, yeah, exactly. The, the core idea is uh, comes from like, mm, look, the, these models are super good at doing language and uh, creating a, a semantic understanding from something when they're trained word by word. Mm-hmm. 
So is it possible that you can sort of get it right from the genetic code to the diagnosis? Uh, it's still a hypothesis. We don't know. Uh, but if it works, then then that will be, I mean, it wouldn't be just applicable to autism. It will be very widely. So now here I'm learning here. Now we're talking transformers again. And the benefit with transformers is that it has attention. Yes. And sequences, I guess. Sequences. So to, to make, you know, tech people also a bit happy here. Uh, I guess genomics is in some sense a large number of characters or a large sequence of uh, genes. Uh, and basically it's, I guess, have some commonalities with text in some sense. And then the hope is that, you know, the best thing we can do for text right now is, I guess, transformers. Mm. If we can transform that into, transform that into genomi uh, genomics as well, then perhaps we can have a similar kind of success, right? Yeah. So here comes the joke. So this must be a GPT-3 problem. <laughs> <laughs> oh, That's we have been, to stop to making uh, that joke. You started this joke. <laughs> it's, yeah. But it's, I mean, transformers for the for the non-tech. Yes, there there are there there are some uh, uh, technical aspects such as such as self-attention that makes it suitable for sequences and, and mm. correlated stuff. But it comes down to like you try to build this really, 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 really big thing, and you feed it a lot of data, and then you go, whoa, look what came out. <laughs> <laughs> so the, it's uh, and by the way, it costs millions to run. Uh, yeah, yeah. But it's uh, sort of what has happened in in text. Uh, I mean, it's it's ridiculous. It's it's. Um, I, I guess we we have to go there. You need to go. You need to go to Bert. Let's talk Bert. No, no but GPT three. Okay, okay, okay. So I was going to jump to Lamar. All right, go there and go there. Uh, we need to talk a little bit about the cool stuff you've been in doing with yeah. uh, with Bert as well. I think. Cool. But, but we mentioned GPTR a number of times and, and we mentioned it also in previous uh, podcasts, but uh, we, I, I think you have some thoughts about, you know, uh, how cool or how good uh, or how valuable is the research being done by OpenAI here for mm -hmm. the massive model called GPT-3 with 175 billion parameters. Yeah. What's your thinking of the research that OpenAI is doing there? So uh, a GPT-3 for the uh, those who you who haven't heard heard about it uh, it's a massive massive text model it's about a thousand times larger than anything built before and it's been done by OpenAI uh, OpenAI is an American was an it, American it was a non-profit but I think it's not anymore yeah, so, <laughs> so, so uh, basically their goal their goal is to reach artificial general intelligence yes. and to be open and share everything that they have mm. they've changed it a bit so uh, what's interesting is that this uh, model doesn't require fine-tuning on a specific data set but it's so large that it contains so much knowledge that you can uh, ask it everything from uh, write a shakespeare sonnet to uh, cr create a user interface in, in code mm -hmm. uh, so it, it's uh, it's a massive leap sort of in uh, the generality of what these systems can do. Yeah. Um, it's probably not very super useful for actual solving business problems today because it, it is very generic rather than, than specialized, but mm. super impressive effort. Uh, what I think is interesting is that open AI, uh, who previously has been very open and released mm. uh, all their, uh, the models as a standard in the industry, has decided to Withhold. N not be open. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 
uh, and uh, basically uh, they are licensing the model exclusively to Microsoft and mm-hmm. then they will be selling it as a service uh, API. And they are, of course, in their right to do so. They've developed it, so I, I have no philosophical objection ag- against it, except they're not really that open, so maybe they should change the name. Change their name, maybe. Yes, and, <laughs> and mission. Uh, but... Uh, what makes me worried there is that it may set a precedent. Uh, and if Google follows, if Microsoft follows, if Facebook follows, and everybody starts keeping the models for themselves, uh, then it will really, really be only li- limited to the tech giants. We're, got, yeah. we're talking about the GPT-3. The estimate was like something like $10 million to train. Mm. Um, and uh, in that case... I, I uh, the, the sort of Europe, China, America thing becomes a bit more worrisome. Uh, and, and in that case, uh, if we go from this open academic spirit that exists today, that when, when you find a great model, you, you share it. If that's, uh, that disappears, mm. then we, since we don't have these uh, tech giants mm. yet, uh, we'll have to invest in infrastructure. In, um, uh, so the AI use. divide will increase yeah, significantly but, more. So but, but the scary yeah. point is that um, as a European society, you never know where the pendulum is going to swing and you should feel the pressure even in the open mm. context to contribute because as long as you're not part of the game, yeah. which is truly, I, I think we're not part of the game, on the real big game we're talking about here, mm. we aren't really contributing here. So, I, you know, if if you flip it from the other side, oh, screw these guys! They're not; they are just riding what we are doing. So, I think they're both from the open-ended side mm. and also from the you know risk side of you know if if the path you are describing yeah. is reality. Either way, you flip this coin. We kind of need to step up. Yeah, uh, I think, and we, I think everybody in this room is quite clear on that. Mm. Um, so, would you, if someone comes, and, and I get this question quite a lot, so I heard about this GPT three thing coming from a non technical technical person, perhaps mm. from a medical field, and they want to understand general text or something, and they say, okay, I want to diagnose, um, uh, yeah, some kind of uh, patient journal condition that they have. Can't we simply apply GPT three to to that? What would you reply to that? If you really want to kill your patients, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> commit to kill. Commit to kill. I mean, GPT-3 is immensely impressive uh, for, for its generality, for the variety, variety of tasks it can do. But yeah. it doesn't do them really well. Yeah. So anything that requires uh, like accuracy or truth or yeah. anything, no. But but there is an there is another so, uh, so that was the the sort of the pessimistic view was like oh, oh my god now they're starting to hoard the algorithms they won't share the mm-hmm. open era of AI is uh, over. Uh, another perhaps more likely thing is that that model is so hideously expensive to train and to run is that for all practical reasons the only ones who would be able to run it mm-hmm. are the Googles and Microsofts mm-hmm. and those. And that OpenAI thought like, yeah, nobody, uh, the, 
the people in general won't be able to use this. So it will just be us doing research and the tech giants not paying anything uh, for using it. Yeah, and still it's underperforming to like a specialized training model still. So it's uh, much easier to run and easier yeah. to train. And you know, so, yeah, people have a so wrong view of think of, of GPT-3. Plus, th- then comes the sort of uh, pr- uh, thing of access- accessibility. And mm. for all their power, the the Googles and the OpenAIs and Microsoft, they, they have generally access massive access to gener- general data, generic mm, right. data. They don't have specialized data. What will work in your industrial process or, uh, no. or something like that? And uh, so there the sort of da- data advantage disappears. And then we come to the, the, the whole the cost thing. I mean, there are other examples of fabulous uh, technological demonstrators that show off what can be done, like, say, the Apollo program that go- got us to the moon, but that are not financially viable today. Mm-hmm. And I, I think GPT-3 may exactly be that. It, it, it's a major milestone, mm-hmm. but it's... it's I'm so we get to go to SpaceX here, but we shouldn't uh, go... Uh, no, but I, I think, no, but, but you, you're, you're touching one of my favorite sort of analogies. It's, it's this whole uh, from scarcity to abundance. Mm-hmm. So, so the core topic here, if you, if you truly want to do pervasive AI yeah. and all this, we, we need to crack the abundance problem and then and then it's low cost and then it's basically simple Mm. to use all this right so but but it it also implies i mean like now if we you know we are strategizing for europe's sake here a couple of minutes maybe Mm. so when we go you know if if going okay we need to have abundance and we need to have low cost if i think now about tooling and how i can apply that and how i can be you know uh, good at what I do, you can talk about abundance and low cost, but for a niche. Mm. So I'm thinking also that this also implies a little bit like not everybody can have world dominance I- across all sectors, but you can take stuff and you can apply it and then you can feed it with the real data that is super relevant for some specific use cases and you can really get good results for a manageable cost. Mm, absolutely. So what is, you know, so is, is that part of the formula here that, you know, when we say tooling in Europe, I mean, we can be good in tooling? I mean, obviously it's, uh, it will cost much, uh, much less and be more accessible to build something that say, uh, ca- categorizes a quality defect rather than building artificial general intelligence. Mm. Uh, so the, the sort of ambition level, the specificity is, it's it's far far more um, manageable. more na- manageable and more narrow goal. And I think, in practical terms, that's where we are with AI today, where it is super useful. Where you fi- find these relatively narrow mm-hmm. use cases, you can find them in many places in a company. Yeah, so that's the point. You have you have. Uh, I start to look at this in 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 a couple of companies now, and you, you I can literally almost find it in every department, mm-hmm. as long as I'm specific or clear yeah. about my, the problem. So, so we could summarize that saying basically GPT-3 is trying to move towards general intelligence, but it's actually underperforming a lot for the narrow tasks. And simply the AI we have today mm. works much better if we uh, use it for narrow tasks and then combine it with humans. And yeah. something, right. And, and, and but if, you know, the time is flying away, away yeah, right? so, so I'm trying to ca- uh, capture as many topics as we can. Let's do it. We um, skipped XLMR, my favorite. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I added to the list as well. 
Um, but just continuing or perhaps starting the next, next discussion about saying, okay, we, we know that fine-tuned models that are narrow works really well, especially when combined mm-hmm. with humans. But then we have the big AGI question about general intelligence and perhaps the singularity mm-hmm. and perhaps what Elon Musk and Stephen Hawkins and, and other Nick Bostrom and who not this is really scared about. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts about singularity? Is it a threat or a possibility? Do you think we will, you know, if we pass singularity, the better life or not? So uh, to connect it to the previous uh, theme, I think ju- just one interesting reflection is that so the, this AGI discussion it's been um, it, it's been here for for a long while, mm-hmm. and with now the rise of AI in the past uh, past years, it's become increasingly popular. And uh, I know that I, and I'm guessing Anders, you, you as well, so, sort of uh, try, try to not to discuss that too much because it was usually by people who have no, no idea what, what, what it is and, mm-hmm. and so on. You just said that, ah, but that will be a worry, worry for later. That's, that's not, not now. What they, I can do is this and this. But now with GPT-3, <laughs> It's the first time that I've heard you, Anders, and mm. heard myself actually talking about mm. AGI. So I think it's it's going faster than I expected. Yep. That that's that's my uh, thing. Mm. And as for the singularity, I mean, I I, I share um, I think at the core Kurzweil's uh, right. uh, view. I think there will be a merging of technology and humans. So w- when when we when we reach the singularity, we'll be part of it. Mm. Back to Elon again. Yeah, he's Neuralink. You know, he's yeah. trying to do the same thing. Okay, so so do you have any thoughts? Uh, so Kurzweil, for example, he has some prediction. I think it was twenty twenty nine or something, um, and it's kind of exponential thinking that he has. Yeah. Do you think that's reasonable, or w- what kind of time frame? Mm-hmm. You put it on. I usually like to put it at a, like a comfortable distance, like saying twenty fifty. Twenty fifty. Yeah, that's that's a popular <laughs> thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, these things are so difficult to. Uh, but even to uh, even to follow exponential curves is so hard, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. It's, so it's, what uh, is you know where where are we now? And you know, is it right here? Or is it? Still very flat. Exactly. What was it? Bill Gates said said something. You know, predictions are hard, especially about the future. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there is and something about the exponentials. It's that uh, I mean, uh, humans don't process it very well. It's like with the uh, mm. Bayesian um, stats that like mm. there there's some circuit in the brain missing that. Like, sure. Yeah, yeah that, exactly. That it's missing something. Yeah. Doesn't work. Yeah. Okay, but but uh, just to summarize, are, are you positive or negative about uh, like fifty years ahead in two thousand fifty plus or something uh, that uh, the AGI potentially will help society or destroy it? I'll just read off your T-shirt: <laughs> AI everywhere, advancing humankind. So uh, positive, good. I would say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> great. Good answer. Really good answer. Cool, um, and we are a bit lacking on time but you mentioned xlmr and perhaps we should just you know also quickly speak about that what's xlmr so xlmr it's one of these uh, language models but the cool thing is about, uh, that it's multilingual and now what 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 i really 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 love uh, about this is these text models they they understand text on a semantic level so meaning not just the word but the actual meaning of the word Meaning that um, you can have two sentences that have completely different uh, words but mean the same thing, it will understand it. 
Turns out this is true for any language. So there is a universal semantic language uh, level across all languages. And I say, take that, postmodernists. <laughs> <laughs> this is Oops. But so now we're getting into polit- political incorrectness here. It's yeah. good. So I like that. <laughs> but but let's let's uh, please dumb it down so I can follow you guys a little bit now. So we are talking about the uh, uh, language model XLMR. Mm. So h- how does that? You know, um, uh, maybe the most stupidest question. How does that relate to BERT or anything mm-hmm. else like so, that? So let me give you a practical, uh, practical use case. Uh, w- one that we did for a, a telecom uh, company, actually, Anders idea and uh, mm-hmm. largely execution. So basically, they have a uh, tons of uh, RFPs, uh, requests for proposals, meaning. Uh, forms that they have to fill out and answer compliance questions mm-hmm. like are you certified for this does it support this uh, and so on and th- these answers can be long or short and um, uh, and th- they've been doing this manually now with the BERT based model what we were able to do was to automate this basically from uh, when they get a question then you map it to the answer to a similar question that was answered in a previous RFP Works beautifully. Now that's English. Now then came XLMR, which supports like basically any language, like hundred plus hundred plus least. languages. That's huge. Meaning that you you can uh, get the question in Japanese and map it to an answer in English, and then map it back if you have the uh, a similar answer in Japanese, answer back in Japanese without any translation actually being. So you can use spit out RFQs all the world, right? Yeah. Exactly, and that that's that's mind blowing. Yeah, uh, we're uh, playing around. So we we have now uh, you know, uh, multilingual BERT in uh, development on, on the platform. We were just playing around yesterday. Uh, wrote a, a, a Gmail plugin for search, where I can type like search in Swedish and get hits, get a- answers like in mails in English. So and the sort of it's no keyword matching; it's semantic matching. It knows what I want. And and is XLMR in any way connected to the Bird community and the Bird research, or is it different? XLMR is uh, Facebook. Bird is Google. That's it. And GPT three is OpenAI. (laughs) (laughs) And and Microsoft at least. So, but it's a little bit like one guy is going here, and then the other guy is leapfrogging. Is it a little bit like this? (sighs) So Google, I think Google is largely trying to ignore XLMR. Yeah, I mean, they tried the multilingual BERT as well in yeah. 2018, but it was not nearly as successful as XLMR mm. and, and the Facebook version of it was, and they trained on huge amount of data. So do you, do you guys yeah, know the team different. behind it? Or like Facebook, right? But is it like the research, AI research department yeah. in yeah, Facebook? Yeah, of course. Yeah. 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 Fair. Fair. Mm. What are they called? Fair? Mm. Don't confuse AI it research. with the more uh, famous pair. Yeah. <laughs> internal <Pantorian>. joke. <laughs> <laughs> internal <laughs> joke. I mean, we have a team, Patorian, called Pair. Patorian uh, AI Research. Yeah, Pair. Pair and Fair Facebook AI Research. Yeah, kinda I kind of like it when I hear the Swedish donation and I think it's an A in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Um, I, I think we're moving um, towards the end here and I'm thinking if we have missed some topic that uh, we should cover as well. Um, but I think we covered the most, right? I have one one question that that is sort of taking us a little bit back to what we talked about of uh, scarcity and abundance, mm-hmm. putting it in the context of Peltorion and then taking it home to the enterprise. So uh, 
I, I kind of get uh, what Peltaran is doing, uh, like as a concept, but but maybe we can take it. Maybe I don't know. I just want to go there. Let's be a little bit concrete. Like, uh, so you you you're working with a big, a big enterprise, and basically, of course, they have their their super big legacy tech stack of a lot of different mm. systems. They've had their sort of data platform project running since I don't know now nowadays since 2013, 14, 15. So they have a, either a an on-prem stack or they've started to use Azure or Amazon, and then they, they started to play around. They are doing more data lake stuff. They're doing pipelines. They're doing a bit of warehousing and all that. Where does Peltarion come in? And and if I think the whole life cycle from you know data engineering. Uh, machine learning data scientist, uh, you know, deploying it mm. from from idea to p- deploy. W- w- where does sort of the toolbox fit in today, in, in in this sort of enterprise context? So it very much depends on the company on how how data ready they, they are. I can give you like two examples that are like two uh, two opposite uh, extremes. One uh, larger company, one a smaller company. So one is a large industrial manufacturer that, among other things, does industrial floor grinders. And one of the things with industrial floor grinders is that you really need to be an expert to use them, and there are a few experts. Now, so they, they had the idea of, can we, uh, in, in some way, through vibrations, through sound, through something else, uh, record how uh, how one of these experts does it and uh, sort of create a model that can then guide a novice user to use it. Uh, so what we helped there then was like from ground up. We helped them design the experiment, design the sort of this, put on microphones here. We actually had a couple of our data scientists, uh, funny videos of them running around with the floor grinders. <laughs> Really, sort of uh, record, uh, record, uh, recording the, the the noise, and then we help them build the model and so on. And the idea is over time. So this, of course, uh, then deploy, deployed on the platform. And the idea is to that Husqvarna over time will take over and do it themselves. So this is like a very gradual. We we help them along. So do they do that? But like concretely, do they live now in Peltorian's own? Uh, cloud as a SaaS solution, or how, how does it work? Uh, basically, it it depends a bit on the project. If it's uh, if it's simple like uh, image classification or or or, thing, uh, or um, uh, some some of the text things or things that's uh, the typical s- stuff that we support really well on the platform, then it goes on the platform. Uh, otherwise, it gets queued in a stack on stuff to be added to the platform. So in, in that case, uh, we make sure to up prioritize that in the development and then we uh, then deploy it then on the platform. Mm-hmm. The other example, sort of the, the, the sort of extreme opposite in the other end, and uh, I, I, I always bring up this example because it's my, my favorite. It's uh, um, a, a Swedish medical company called uh, Sybase that create this probe for the uh, melanoma detection. And they were a very early platform user, and their idea was, can they do? Uh, can they augment the probe data with image data? So that's basically you could, f- apart from measuring a birthmark with the probe, that you take a photo of it. So the combined data goes into a model and comes out with a prediction. And um, well, it didn't work. Well, it, it did work. Yeah, it they got uh, they got okay results, but nothing. Uh, uh, 
like that would warrant them seeking new FDA approval and uh, sort of the, the results weren't too impressive. And uh, year after sort of they started using the platform, they we had the meeting, sort of check-in meeting, and we were like, okay, they, they are churning. They're, there's no way. I mean, they didn't get what they want. But they, they seem pretty happy. And they said, yeah, the melanoma thing, we, we put that on hold, but uh, we discovered another thing. So there's a layer between the in the skin that's a membrane that keeps uh, crap from getting into the skin, uh, from uh, into the body. And uh, when that membrane is weak, people with allergies, they get eczema and sort of rash on the, uh, on the skin. And the only way to measure that membrane so far has been by doing a biopsy. And that was only possible on an area where there was actually a rash. Then you could measure it. What they discovered that they could, with their probe and our platform, actually measure it really, really accurately. So they figured out a new use case. Yes, completely new use case. Uh, wrote a bunch of papers, and basically this is a major part of their business now. And now the, the sort of the cool thing, why why this is my uh, sort of why why I like this case so much, is that. There is no way we could have come up with that use case. We had no idea that there was a membrane in the skin. Like, well, what? No, so give it in the hands of the yeah, real guys. Exactly. Well, well, they, I mean, they're not data scientists. They're medical engineers and uh, general me medical people. And they wouldn't have had a chance without the platform to, to solve it. So that, that's super. Then at the end of the meeting, they, they said, but it was almost as they were working. Oh yeah, we have, we have another uh, another system in production, and that's um, so uh, they have this factory in Uppsala where they produce the probe, and the quality control is that has been done by a person looking in the microscope mm. at the tip of the probe and then saying, ah, oh, this is okay or this is not okay. And then, um, so what they did is that they bought a video microscope uh, connect, connected to uh, a computer, and then the a summer intern, the CFO's daughter, built a classification model or a quality control, and it worked really great. And it put it into production. <laughs> so that's super cool. Yeah, so that's uh, we love skunk work, don't we? <laughs> it's not skunk work. I mean, I don't I mean know, like I don't that. Think but so. but I, I think one way to phrase it is basically, I guess, to if we can put AI in the hand of domain experts mm. and commit to deploy, <laughs> yeah. then I guess you will have a recipe for success. I guess of yeah. AI, right? Well summarized. All right. Cool, Luca. Um, what's next in your life? What's happening coming months for you personally? So uh, right now it's what's, uh, I mean, really exciting for us is that we're uh, getting uh, more and more users on the platform. It's uh, really growing exponentially. So everything mm. that goes with that and seeing what... what Another cool. exponential train or trend? Uh, yes. yes. Oh, cool. Uh, seeing sort of what, uh, what people come up with. That there is nothing as cool when somebody uses a tool you built in a way that you never thought they, it, it could be used. <laughs> yeah, that's really fun. That's, uh, and if you were to recommend someone that you'd like to actually listen to on this podcast, who would you recommend to have us here? Hmm. So as a, a future guest... Um, yeah. So it could, it could be interesting to have somebody from from interest, industry, some uh, CIO or something like that, who's more in the, or or somebody who has a, a more of a whole company view and sort of views the challenges. Mm -hmm. uh, Gustav Söderström, perhaps oh, yeah. from Spotify. Good, good idea. 
Awesome. That sounds great. And if you have any more thoughts, just let, let, let's uh, let's figure out some industry people. I, I think that's yeah. a great idea because now we've had uh, people in in public sector. Uh, we have some mm. had some super techy guys. Uh, let, let's uh, focus uh, eventually on some uh, more. You know, in how is it to be a receiver of yeah. trying to adopt AI? Maybe also, I like the whole idea: a company mm. that is not data tech native right mm. i think that is very interesting to hear that story yeah let's do that great so, idea thank you very much luca it's a pleasure as absolute pleasure it's very interesting to speak to you so thank you very much thank you thank you for having me